$4 billion, the amount of annual investment in housing recommended by a broad coalition of groups called United for Housing. As we've discussed consistently on this podcast, housing needs in the city are acute. We are a city of renters and two thirds of renters are rent burdened, meaning they spend more than 30% of household income on rent. The city's largest and most affordable apartments, the units managed by the New York City Housing Authority, have fallen into disrepair with at least 40 billion in repair needs. The coalition is calling for 1.5 billion in city funding annually to be matched by the state for NYCHA and 2.5 billion in general housing investment. They are also calling for 200 million in rental assistance from the state and a new, more effective strategy to reduce homelessness. Besides direct public investment, what else needs to happen to spur housing production in the city? Today, we continue our conversations on land use with representatives of two members of the United for Housing Coalition, the Fifth Avenue Committee and the Real Estate Board. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulis from the CBC. Thanks so much for joining us here. Our final episode of 2020. Uh, what a year it's been. Uh, we are thankfully back in the swing of things here on What's the Data Point with a series of episodes um, after we took a little bit of a break when everything got as bad as it did earlier this year. Um, and, and we're hoping things are headed off here as, uh, as the city faces and the state faces uh, another wave here of the coronavirus. Uh, and we're looking today at uh, other aspects of where the city is heading into 2021. Uh, what we've learned in 2020, and what's coming up next in what is going to be an immensely important year for New York City in 2021 on many levels. And so we're continuing our theme of land use and development. We've done three straight episodes on those themes. We started with a discussion of Industry City and what fell apart there in the proposal to uh, rezone part of that area in Brooklyn. Then we moved on to a discussion of the potential rezoning of part of Gowanus. And then we went to discuss the Flushing Waterfront District, which uh, not long after we discussed it, wound up passing through the city council with some tweaks to the proposal that we had gone over with our guests, uh, one of the developers from the proposal and an opponent of the plan. And so we continue on that theme today with a, a broader discussion, not really focused on one particular project or proposal, but for our year-end episode, zooming out a bit and looking at development, land use, uh, how to create housing and jobs in the city, what's wrong with the current discussion, where it needs to go, with two great guests, two experts in the field. We're joined today by Payman Lodi, who is a Senior Vice President at the Real Estate Board of New York, and Michelle De La Uz, who's the Executive Director of the Fifth Avenue Committee, and a commissioner on the City Planning Commission. Thank you both for being with us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. So, um, Michelle, why don't we start with you and then go to payment. Just a, a brief introduction of yourself. Uh, I gave your current roles, but, um, you know, to say a little bit more about the work you currently do and anything else you want to note about uh, anything you've done before, before your current roles. Uh, again, thanks for the invitation um, and happy holidays, everybody. 
Um, so uh, I'm the executive director of the Fifth Avenue Committee, and, and FAC is a 42-year-old nonprofit comprehensive community development corporation whose mission is to advance economic and social justice. Uh, some of the ways that we do that is that we build and manage affordable housing and community facilities. Um, we have a, a development pipeline of more than 1,700 units currently. Um, we also organize uh, folks around their rights and around accountable development issues. And uh, FAC helped um, and is currently supporting the Gowanus Neighborhood Coalition for Justice, um, which is engaged um, in the Gowanus area-wide rezoning. Um, and we also do uh, tenant eviction prevention uh, work, foreclosure work, um, and uh, have workforce development and training programs. So in, we, we serve about uh, 5,500 low and moderate income New Yorkers annually. Um, and I've, I've been a member of the New York City City Planning Commission uh, since uh, the spring of 2012. So um, I, I bring a perspective that is both grounded in communities and in serving people, but also has a, a citywide perspective. Go ahead, Payment. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, Payman Lothi here, Senior Vice President at the Real Estate Board of New York. Um, I run our policy department at Rebney. For those who don't know, uh, the Real Estate Board is the city's largest trade association representing the real estate industry. And we really, we touch upon everything from housing policy, uh, construction, tax policy, sustainability, land use, labor relations, workforce development, and and you know, we do have uh, an element of philanthropy that we do. Um, Rebney has been around for well over 25, 125 years. And um, we have a long-term view of where the city has been and where it, where it should go. And it's all grounded on what's best for the city in terms of, you know, um, a thriving city. Okay. So you, both of your organizations, as Maria said in, in the brief introduction, uh, are part of this 80 organization coalition called United for Housing that just uh, came to the public and announced a big uh, plan, a proposal, uh, basically saying, uh, these are the affordable housing recommendations from these 80 groups for New York City's next mayor. And so this is hoping to shape the conversation in 2021 as New York City elects that new mayor. Um, you want to hit a couple of highlights or, or, you know, the reason that you think it was so important to do this and participate in it? Uh, Michelle, why don't, you, why don't you start, you know, a couple highlights from the proposals or, or reasons that you think it's so important to do? Yeah, no, I think the United for Housing uh, proposal is significant. One, because of the 80 groups that you talked about, right? That's that's a really significant consensus um, across a very diverse group of uh, stakeholders in the city. So that's one. And I, I think the other is that the plan um, centers a, a couple different things. It, it's, it centers equity and, and racial justice um, uh, as part of... Um, you know, addressing the city's uh, housing needs um, and uh, issues around homelessness. I also think that it, it really um, lays out significant uh, emphasis on serving the neediest New Yorkers um, and uh, having a more comprehensive approach to homelessness um, and also ensuring that uh, the city invests in public housing. Um, it also calls on the state to invest in public housing um, and to do that on an, on an annual basis. So 
Um, and, and it also, of course, has really important recommendations as it relates to land use. So, yeah, there's no way we can get into all of what it entails, but but you know, those are a few highlights, and people can certainly check it out uh, online. Payment, go ahead. Yeah, um, shout out to Rachel Fee and the Housing Conference for pulling together 80 different organizations and what I can imagine is only a great deal of brain damage. Um, so if anyone wants to send her a bottle of Excedrin for a stocking stuffer, I'm sure to be appreciated. Um, but just to touch upon what Michelle said, we all recognize that our city has a housing crisis, uh, one that's just been exacerbated by COVID. And you know, for the next administration, they've got to double down and putting together an affordable housing plan that's comprehensive, equitable, and addresses a bunch of issues, you know, whether that is the future of NYCHA and how we plan to restore the quality of our most important public housing stock, um, you know, creating jobs through the, uh, through the development of new affordable housing, exploring opportunities for home ownership so that the equity is spread a little bit more evenly throughout the city. And I think most importantly, um, that is out there is this recognition that, you know, it's, it's not uh, solving our housing crisis is not one in which we can just do it by building our way out of the problem. Really, we need rental assistance. Um, those who have lower, those families that have lower incomes, they need, they just don't have enough income to make uh, their, you know, their monthly payments for their rent. And we've got to, the city and the state has got to work together to develop a rental assistance program that can put money directly in these families' pockets so that they can pay rent and to keep them out of the homeless facilities that have been inundated and that are that are just growing and is growing as a result of COVID even more. I still have a lot digging to do into the plan to look at the recommendations and such. Certainly, I think in broad strokes, it identifies exactly the right challenges and is pushing towards the right solutions and looking at them very holistically, right? You know, the homeless problem, homelessness problem is not isolated from the housing problems, from the rent burdens, you know, et cetera. So it's, it, and, and the segregation issues in our city, right? So I think that's a great framework. Um, I think you're right that, whole, you know, housing issues are going to be one of the top issues going into the next mayoral campaign. But if we sort of look back at our history and Payman, you mentioned sort of having the long view commissioner, you've been on the sitting planning commission now for a long time. You know, housing was one of the top issues the last time we were electing a new mayor, right? And he had the greatest or largest housing plan that was going to supersede what was previously the record largest housing plan. So before we sort of look forward, let's take a look back and sort of give me your assessment of what went right and what went wrong in this and where we sort of failed to live up to or fail to accomplish some of the things that um, I think a lot of people would have agreed broadly, just like right now, were worthy goals and the right direction to push in. I mean, I'm happy to start. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I think the big thing to keep in mind is that when, when you know, the city definitely has a rich history of um, having incredibly ambitious uh, affordable housing plans, starting from Koch, right? We, we have the most ambitious of any municipality in the country. I think where we, we tend to go wrong is that we, we tend to be driven by one goal, right? The total number of units, either developed or preserved. Um, and that, that metric, while very compelling, is insufficient. And it doesn't really help address where is the greatest need. And as long as we're not focused on those in the greatest need, 
um, then the city will like literally just be displacing water, right? <laughs> Basically, it, it, it might be building and preserving, you know, the now 300,000 units. It's like on, on target to do that, right? But it's, it's not doing enough at the, air, the income levels where people have the greatest rent burden um, or the greatest risk of homelessness. And these, I mean, these are, you know, the issues that we're talking about are, um, and we, as we've seen from COVID, it, it's really a, um, all the issues coming together um, in a community or for a particular family. It's the income, it's the rent burden, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the, it might be a health condition, it might be overcrowding, it might be the fact that, you know, work is not consistent, right? Or that someone is um, uh, being exploited in some way, right? And then, you know, the, sim the symptom is the rent burden, the symptom is the homelessness, the symptom um, it, are the long wait lists, um, you know, in order to get into, into housing. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think the plan, if you look at the plan, there's, you know, pages and pages of metrics that go beyond just, you know, X number of units of affordable housing. It's, it's really about depth of affordability and targeting where there's greatest need. And it's also about you know, um, having a comprehensive plan um, that looks at homelessness and housing development and preservation at the same time. Right now, we have different people trying to solve those problems. That's part of the problem, right? NYCHA, by the way, which is one of exactly, the most striking, exactly. striking things about the, the, you know, the framing of this big plan is how NYCHA is, is featured, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd echo what what Michelle said and that, um, listen, if we're giving the administration credit, they certainly deserve credit um, in pushing the argument about the need for housing creation, recognizing that this is a market in which supply and demand um, still matter. Um, they deserve credit for their landmark mandatory inclusionary housing program, which you know, there was a lot of skepticism to begin with and they proved that it could be done and implemented. Kudos for that. Um, where they probably fell short is, you know, in terms of the affordability is addressing the other side of the ratio, which is the income piece. You know, how do you boost incomes so that families can pay their rent? And whether that be through a voucher program or rental assistance or just economic development and workforce development to make sure that wages are growing. Um, and then, Ben, you alluded to it at the end there, or you just alluded to it, was the issue of NYCHA, which just did not improve um, over the course of the past seven years. I would also just, I do want to give the administration credit in addition, um, you know, in addition to MIH, which I still think, you know, could have some uh, tweaks to improve, to improve it. Um, you know, the administration should be given credit for the term sheets, you know, when, when HPD put out new term sheets for their financing and they really started to align uh, tax incentives with their affordable housing finance. Uh, it, I mean, it really has um, provided more accessibility um, on affordable housing for, for lower income folks. It's just not enough, right? And which is why the income side of things in, or the rental assistance side of things is so critical. How much, um, you know, is, is the housing uh, crisis and, you know, we, I, you know, I still think we don't really know what COVID's impact on it is going to be because, you know, we're seeing the eviction moratorium extended again. And, you know, we just don't know really what's going to happen here in the coming months and, and even years. 
But how much of the problem is um, the lack of overall supply of housing? How much is that an issue? And, you know, how do you sort of think about the balance of, you know, just building a lot more housing? I see part of this, you know, new plan that's being put forward here is, you know, upzone in wealthier areas. Um, how much of it is, is a supply issue versus, um, you know, not doing enough for the lowest income New Yorkers? Um, listen, I, I think you got you to gotta address both sides of that equation. Right. You, you, you have to have enough housing supply um, so that you can stabilize prices for housing. At the same time, we I think you know, and there's there's plenty of blame to go around, but um, we didn't do enough to create, you know, or, or to to boost the one shot programs and the rental assistance to keep families uh, out of homeless shelters. Michelle can probably speak to the specifics and the data around that, but it's shocking how many families um, are evicted or go through the homeless shelters because they were behind on just one month's rent. And when you think about um, the cost efficiency for government or for government, it, you know, <laughs> if you were to provide that family with you know, a shot of income to cover that one month rent, probably a lot more cost effective than paying for them to stay in a homeless shelter, let alone all of the other negative repercussions that result. The supply issue is real, right? Um, and it's and it's more real in certain neighborhoods than others, right? Um, and, you know, part of the challenge that we have is that um, kind, of, kind of going back to, um, you know, the connection between land use and development is that you know, so few neighborhoods in the city actually account for the new for creation of new units, right? Um, and that and that creates uh, it's very lopsided, and that's and that's very problematic. So we really do need to look at communities um, that haven't been contributing towards the supply as part of the solution. You know, I think you're you're right about the income side of the equation. It gets left out of the conversation a lot here. And you know, certainly when we look at what the most effective interventions are um, for keeping people easing their rent burdens, keeping them in their homes, I think rental support is part of that. And the most effective program we found is actually Section 8, which is a federal program. And so thinking of through like, okay, if we can't impress upon the feds, the fact that this is, you know, they need to step up here where I think there's been a big retrenchment, not only in support through this kind of rental assistance, but also in terms of supporting public housing and providing the funds necessary there to keep the units at an adequate, you know, in an adequate condition, um, management issues aside, then I think the question becomes what are the reasonable supports and what is a reasonable scale of intervention for the state and the city because they don't have the same pockets as, as the feds to be able to support these things. But certainly I think when you look at the data and particularly on the homeless issue, when the Advantage program ended, then you sort of see a trajectory increase. And so I think you're right that looking at these things holistically is really, really important when it comes to thinking through like, you know, we've got these issues, they're all interrelated, what do we do about them? Um, what do you, I mean, how do you, get, given the fiscal issues, right, and given the challenge of the support, you know, one of the issues that I hear is I, I see and I understand the need to sort of say we need, we have this deeply, severely rent burden population, right? And 
we've got to support them well. And it's most long, lowest income people that are most severely burdened. But the subsidy required to bring the units online for those folks are is 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 big, right? So it's either a cross subsidy from the other market rate units, which means rents go up for everybody else, or it's a direct subsidy in terms of public investment. And there has traditionally been like this tension between, you know, doing the deepest subsidy versus bringing more units online. So how should the next mayor and council think about that? I mean, first off, it, it, this is not an either or. It has to be a both and approach, right? That That is very, very real. And it has to be very intentional. I mean, I, I think part of it is, I mean, and you just said it, like, let's not be penny wise and pound foolish, right? Like, it costs the taxpayers a hell of a lot more money to, to put someone in a shelter um, than it does to provide the rental assistance. It also is very cost effective to provide adult education and literacy and workforce development, right? So that folks can then have better paying jobs. Um, so these are all these are all investments that need to be made that avoid expenses, you know, um, from from the homeless sector, from you know the public safety sector, right? You know, like there there are savings in other areas. It's been demonstrated, right? Same, obviously, with healthcare um, expenses. Like all of these things, if we invest in people and we invest in communities, we will save long term, and we'll and we'll actually grow our tax base. Um, and so, but it, it, people have to have a longer term perspective on these things. I mean, there's there's a pretty strong current, you know, a pretty strong anti-development current, obviously, in the city. There's been a bunch of projects uh, of all sorts uh, shot down over the last couple of years, um, whether it's, you know, as big as Amazon to then Industry City, but also just even smaller ones and neighborhood rezonings and all, all sorts of things. So what's what's what do you think is missing in the conversation? What do you think needs to change about the conversation? How do people who want to see a lot more development make inroads here to convince folks who are, you know, rightfully concerned about displacement and, and other issues, but how does that get figured out better? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with leadership. Um, we have to recognize that we have a regional approach here that we have to solve. And, you know, the, yeah, I, I, my history doesn't go far back enough to know, you know, how the council operated with the mayor and how they, how they ultimately allowed for projects to proceed. But this idea of deferring to the local council member is quite damaging to the broader city at, at large. But just back to the issue of leadership, um, you know, I just, we should flag someone in particular who wears her NIMBY badge quite prominently, and that's Gail Brewer. And she's convened these, um, these working groups to solve, you know, major rezoning projects from East Harlem to Garment District, East Midtown, and Soho NoHo. And what she does is she creates a very, very large tent, um, brings all the stakeholders together, it's, it's, it's months long therapy session where we air out all grievances and hash out all the issues. There, is there consensus on all the recommendations? No, um, there never will be, but you work through most of the big issues to a point where you can get to a yes. And you know that process plays out a little bit more smoothly through the public review process. So, I mean, that is a model that, you know, I would, 
that I think has been effective and that other elected officials should kind of seize as it relates to these larger rezoning efforts. Um, that, you know, that's really interesting, Payman, that you said that because part of my reflection on the conversations we've had here on Flushing and Gowanus and Industry City is that, you know, people are frustrated and they find that the land use process is like, finally someone's paying to, you know, attention and they can air these frustrations and other grievances that they have, even if that's not like necessarily the right forum. And so this concept of sort of like providing the space for people to say, you know, okay, but you know, we have these other concerns and like, we need to talk about them and somebody needs to hear us is really important. I think like there's something in there about improvements in the future. Michelle. Yeah, it's called democracy, right? Like what we're talking about is called democracy, right? <laughs> Effective democracy is when, you know, those who are in positions of power listen to, you know, the citizens, you know, with a small C and uh, take those, uh, you know, those considerations and those concerns, you know, those concerns into consideration as, as planning moves forward. But that has to be balanced. Like the local concerns have to be balanced with city or regional need, right? Like that, that is where the tension is. And I think, you know, in the city planning commission, the moments where I find most compelling, honestly, is, is actually the back and forth dialogue between uh, commissioners and uh, folks that come to testify where we basically share like the where the tensions are in the particular decision making that is going on people share their concerns we 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 share like what we know about um, you know public policy and how it gets enacted and like where the tensions are and like that is that is what needs to happen on a like on a more regular basis right and quite honestly a much broader group of new yorkers need to participate in that conversation right that unfortunately you know an, you know, Gowanus will get certified next month, uh, and uh, but it'll be the first, you know, neighborhood rezoning that gets certified in what is now a majority white community. You know, those other communities, um, whether it was Jerome Avenue or East New York or East Harlem, you know, wherever it was, they th those are communities that deserved investment. You know, those were lower income communities of color that deserved investment regardless of a citywide land use action, right? And I think that's um, it's understandable that people are upset, like when these things happen. Um, and just like you said, Maria, they're, they're going to, they're going to seize on that moment to like air all mm -hmm. these other grievances. So if we have an effective democracy, we'll be addressing those things, you know, through many different means. I guess a lot of this conversation ties into what we just saw come um, be announced by the city council, which is this idea of a, of a 10 year planning process for comprehensive planning in the city. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think, you know, do you think if Mayor de Blasio had sort of started his administration and you know, he put out, they, they eventually put out this list of neighborhoods that they wanted to do rezonings in. And it, it was a bit of a mix of neighborhoods. It wasn't, it wasn't really balanced in terms of lower income and upper income, but it was, it had more diversity than the the list of the ones he wound up doing. Um, but, you know, if, if sort of that had been more of an approach of, of a real citywide framework to try to show the bigger vision, do you think that makes a difference? Do you think it's really time for this now? Do you think this is a fool's errand to try to do comprehensive planning in New York City? Uh, what do you what do you think about this? Go ahead, Payman. Comprehensive planning is always a good idea. It's always, but the question is, you know, how, how do you enact it and, um, you know, how effective will it be? 
I think you can look back to, to efforts like Plan YC, where you saw, Ben, to your point, a bigger vision of like what, what was in store for the city, whether that be a, a million trees and five minute walk of any place you, you needed to go to. Um, comprehensive planning makes a lot of sense. You know, I, we haven't gone through all of the details of what's in the city council's proposal. So we're trying to understand what it actually means and what the land use implications would be. But overall, yes, it's the right way to plan. It's the right way to plan for a very big region that has uh, neighborhoods that are so different from each other. Yeah, I mean, it's long overdue is the answer. I mean, in the city, the city has put out many different plans for different things. And I think and they just all need to speak to each other, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously there's NYCHA 2.0, now there's a blueprint plan, right? There's, you know, their housing 2.0, there's, uh, you know, one city, one future, like there's all these different things that, that really need to come together. Um, and of course it all needs to come together also as part of a, a, a capital plan as well um, for the city. And I guess that gets a little bit to the question of ULERP and, um, I don't know, let's just say, you know, short of this comprehensive planning uh, vision moving ahead, are there things about the city's land use process? Um, Maria, I know I stole, I stole your question here. Uh, <laughs> but are there, are there things about the city's land use process that need to be altered or in an ideal world would be altered tomorrow for, you know, for 2021? I mean, I, I have a couple pet peeves. Um, I, I mean, you know, obviously the environmental review process is um, not as comprehensive as it should be. There, there are a number of things that are flawed uh, about it um, that I that I think, um, you know, then make communities doubt that what the, the you know what is represented is something that they can trust. So it's been a long time since we've updated the manual. Um, you know, obviously look, looking at, um, you know, whether or not the proposal, whether it's a citywide sponsored proposal or a private proposal is advancing fair housing. And there's you know, obviously a big, a big part of the proposal for the 10 year plan also looks basically at um, racial impact. Um, so, you know, I think those, those are things that can and should be updated right away. Um, and don't have to don't have to wait. Um, so those are just there's a couple of things to touch on. Yeah, just just some broad themes. I mean, transparency and engagement can always be improved. And so, you know, whether that be through environmental review, um, through noticing requirements, through more public engagement on the front end before an application gets certified. I mean, those are all things that make sense. Um, and theoretically should improve engagement. Just real quick, I, 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 keep, I keep bumping up against the issues that there seems to be a lot of agreement that communities need to be brought into planning processes earlier, whether it's uh, you know a neighborhood rezoning or a big development project. And also that a lot of this stuff takes too long. And I don't know how to sort of figure both of those out um, and make it work better for the city because this, you know, Gowanus as an example, you know, we had council member Lander on, we, we went through all this with him. So folks should listen to that. But, but as a broader theme, and we even talked with him about this as a broader theme, this is taking forever, Gowanus. You know, so what, what's the, how do we fix, how do we fix those two sides of the equation? Can we? 
Well, I think I think we could have gotten to certification earlier had the administration um, been. It goes back to the leadership piece, right? The administration need need to show more leadership in terms of some of the bottom lines that the the council members have laid out and what the community has laid out. And obviously the biggest one as it relates to Guana still needs to be resolved. And that is what is the administration willing to invest in public housing? Like, you know, if they had said a year ago, like, you know, here's a hundred million dollars or more for public housing, like we could have, we could have been done with this um, <laughs> already. You know, what are the other demands on a, on an administration? But the other part is communities do need to be brought in earlier. Um, and I, and I think, you know, the administration also need whoever it is, needs to be ready to act, right? They have to be like a state of readiness. <laughs> um, and I think part of the challenge is that, especially as it relates to city-sponsored rezonings, and this, this is one of the challenges of how it works. The, in the administration, whoever the administration is, wants to wait until the very end of ULERP to basically make certain commitments, right? Because they don't, they don't want to have to like negotiate and then like have to give more later. Right. And I think that's, that's unfortunate, right? Because I think that kind of leads to um, more cynicism and distrust. Um, so I, I think hopefully, uh, you know, I, I think the council members and the mayor, whom, whoever they are, need to kind of um, like be clear about bottom lines and, um, you know, what's feasible um, based on community demands and citywide need, you know, earlier in the process. There's a question about how the land use process can be um, supported or improved with a comprehensive plan. And I think, you know, what most of development in the city actually occurs as of right. Part of the challenge that we're grappling here with is that the zoning map for by and large is the one we created in the 60s. And so we're in a different world than we were in 1961. And so how do we, I mean, you know, so this is all really about things that are outside the as of right development and how do we create a process that allows them to go forward. And so the sense I think is that, okay, if we have a plan and there's buy-in to the plan and, you know, that can take that's like could take a lot of different forms than if we buttress the, you know, the land use process against this plan, it should make things go smoothly. But I think like we're hitting on exactly the right points, which is like, it takes a lot of leadership. It takes focus. It takes, you know, this action as Michelle put it, right? Like you have to act to align these stars in a way and have someone who is the champion, whether that's like, you know, the mayor or the council speaker, or, you know, we can identify the actors like driving this stuff forward. Um, but in all that, right, it's important to keep community voice involved, right? Because, you know, there's also the sense out there that like, you know, all proposals are great and they're not. Some of them are terrible. Some of them deserve to die and not be certified by the city planning commission, right? But, you know, how do we, I, I'm also really challenged and I ask this question, I think at every podcast, which is like, how do we make sure or how, what are the best models out there for having really broad community engagement? Because, you know, I, yeah, I attend my community board meeting and it's only people who are inherently invested with a certain interest to stop something or to make something proceed, right? It's like a very narrow sliver of people who are so in tune with government. So if we're going to engage the community and really get like take its pulse, how do we do that broadly? Like what are the best models that you guys have seen both in terms of like vehicles or avenues for doing it or even examples of projects that have happened where this was done very well? 
wearing my former district manager hat, um, Perfect. which I like to describe as the most fun I never want to have again. Um, <laughs> but this is, you know, community engagement's a necessary pro part of the, of the public review process. And I'm going to go back to what I said about the brilliance of someone like Gail Brewer, which was bringing together the community boards, the local council members, you know, factions of the, uh, the development community, um, any other local interest groups, bringing all these stakeholders together to hash it out and to realize that like all these sides have legitimate points of views that need to be heard and addressed. There's a whole lot of, the, the benefit is that there's a whole lot of myth busting that goes on through that process. And it fosters an environment where you can trust each other more to have these honest conversations and recognize, look, at the end of the day, we're gonna have to stand for something. So do we recognize that there is a problem that needs to be addressed? Yes, all right, so now how are we gonna go about um, addressing that in a way that's equitable? I, I think what um, Payman just said is, is absolutely right on. I, I think it's a lot about having um, trusted local leaders and organizations helping broker and convene honestly. Um, I think that is a, a big part of it. Uh, and in some cases that might be, you know, the borough president or the local elected official. In some cases, it might be community-based organizations. I mean, I'd also, I also think that in some cases it's the local community board, but it, whatever, whoever it is, um, there also needs to be some resources, right? Like <laughs> the community engagement process is very, very time consuming. Um, and uh, you know, for instance, right now with COVID, like Fifth Avenue Committee, we've we've bought tablets and hotspots and trained people and handed them out to people who don't have access uh, to the internet so that they can participate. We've done Zoom trainings and digital literacy trainings. Like, if you're, you got to be like, you know, it, it requires investment, like of time, of resources to to make sure that. Um, you know, that you don't just get the normal and everyday sus you know, suspects participating in these processes. You know, it's interesting, you guys have forgotten that, um, you know, something that actually came up in the industry city uh, conversations that we had where we, we had them separately, but we talked to Andrew Kimball, uh, the CEO of industry city, and we talked to council member Carlos Menchaca, and they both said, you know, the mayoral administration was MIA on trying to be a convener and bring people together to try to really get to yes. And, you know, the mayor was asked about it publicly several times and basically punted it over to the city council. It doesn't seem like the council speaker's office was that involved. It doesn't seem like the borough president was that involved there. So this issue of leadership and trying to bring the parties together to get to yes is a, is a pretty interesting theme here uh, and something that'll be uh, very important in this mayoral race. Um, so we, just, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I think just a couple more questions. Um, and we're talking here with Payman Lodi of the Real Estate Board of New York and Michelle De La Uz of Fifth Avenue Committee and the City Planning Commission. Um, I guess one question I have uh, in, our, in our final few minutes is um, what are the big opportunities you see lo looking ahead? What are the you know, are there, are there big projects that are on your radar? There's obviously, we mentioned the Gowanus rezoning, but are there other big projects um, on your radar or areas of the city you think could really use development of some way? You know, what are, what are some of the, what are some of the opportunities ahead? I'll go back to the theme that was discussed before, which is about economic integration 
And, um, you know, I think that there are opportunities to, uh, to do affordable housing so that lower income families can move into higher income neighborhoods. Um, one idea that, that we've been putting out there and it's just stealing an idea from the past that was quite successful is the um, opportunities for conversion of class B and C office spaces in Midtown Manhattan. And, you know, you could fashion it in such a way that, you know, you would require some affordable housing component or, you know, funding to NYCHA or you know, anything to address our affordable housing crisis, really. And, you know, just to go back to Maria's point about like the antiquated zoning, I mean, Midtown Manhattan has something like 100 acres of manufacturing zoning between 14th and 42nd. And, um, yeah, and it's not to say that much manufacturing is actually going on. Those, those buildings have been converted to class B and C office spaces. And, and listen, class B and C office space, they serve a purpose. They provide low rent spaces for nonprofits and startups who are looking to get their foothold in New York City. But the, you know, COVID has taught us that we, we need to be flexible if we're gonna grow and if we're going to get out of this. And so you know, the opportunity to allow for office conversions to residential gives the community that sort of flexibility. It obviously has to tie with some sort of public benefit um, like affordable housing. But you know, I, I also just wanna go back to um, a point we, we raised about jobs and economic development. You know, last week we released a report that new construction activity in New York is at its lowest point in a decade. So you know, we need to start thinking about policies that can quickly and creatively kickstart construction economy. We think that this is one way in doing so. I'd add hotels into the conversation about conversions as well. I definitely think that's right. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, and that you know, first off, I'll just say that there's a lot of I think potential there for sure. Um, and you know, I think in order for communities to be open to that, there you know, whatever investment is needed in infrastructure to to make those um, you know neighborhoods that are are more uh, residential in nature, I think will be important for people to kind of believe that that's a good idea <laughs> in the in the long term and not just in the short term. I think on the other end of the spectrum, as we as we look at um, so much of New York City is zoned at lower densities, like people don't realize how much of New York City is zoned at lower densities. Um, and like look, looking at modest increases in density um, in, in those communities, looking at um, ability to add accessory, uh, you know, accessory dwelling units in those neighborhoods, you know, something that doesn't change the, the nature of the community the character of the community, but adds uh, capacity, um, residential capacity, and, and, not, and quite honestly, perhaps capacity in ways that support those more moderate income homeowners um, in, in you know, the outer boroughs, I think are ways, are things that we really need to be thinking about. Um, you know, and so I, I would very much encourage that. And it's obviously something that's in the United for Housing report as well. Uh, well, we thank you both for the time. We appreciate it. This is a really good way to um, wrap up our, our series here at the end of 2020. I'm sure we'll be continuing to look at issues of development and land use in 2021. But for our, our little mini series here this year, this was a great way to wrap it up. Thank you both for the time and have a good sure. new year. Likewise.